So if you would, open your Bible to Matthew 28. We'll read it, I'll pray, and we'll unpack it together. So beginning in Matthew 28. Sorry, Matthew 8, 28. And when he came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming down to the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the, de the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out, went to the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this day and this word from, from your holy word. And we just pray that as we come together, you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and mind to understand this message prepared just for us this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, last week, we saw Jesus as the sleeping Savior. Now, I really wanted to title this sermon something with alliteration, like Demon Deliverer, or something like that. But instead, I went with From Demoniacs Delivered to Devil Ham. So, a storm that. Uh, so, you might remember that Dave, he describes this storm last week as, a, as an earthquake, a, a tempest. It's a great storm. And this week we'll pick up the story on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And we'll, we'll see where he meets these two, two demon-possessed men. And this is a story we find in all three Gospels, all three synoptics. It has it there. And we'll talk about some of the differences. And we'll also rely on Mark and Luke to fill in some of the details that Matthew leaves out. And remember that just because there's differences doesn't mean that there's contradictions. These differences can be reconciled. And I think as we see, as we look, we'll see that if we, if we understand what they're saying and the purpose of the different Gospels, that we'll, we'll be able to easily reconcile the differences. And this is kind of a kitchen sink passage. We see in it all these different things, demoniacs, demon, demons, pigs, and even a little bit of eschatology. And that's a, that's a word that talks about the last days, and we'll get to that in a minute, but even that's in here. So we've got a little bit of everything, so let's get started. If you look at verse 28, this kind of sets the stage, and you'll see that when it came to the other side, he was talking about the Sea of Galilee there, they come to the, the country of the Gadarenes. The Gadarenes are residents of Gadara, and it's one of the ten cities of the Decapolis, just southeast of the Sea of Galilee. If you look at this map, there's two, there's three different places that we're going to talk about because the Gospels say something different in Mark and Luke and Matthew. So Gadara, you see that towards the middle, that's what we're talking about that Matthew says it occurred. In Mark and Luke, the demon-possessed man is from the country of the Gerasenes, presumably from Gerasa. If you look down the southeast side of the map, you can see that in there. And just to confuse things a little more, the King James Version says, 
Ergasso, which you'll see just on the east shore of the Sea of Galilee. So in Mark and Luke, the demon-possessed man is from the country of the Gerasenes, presumably from Gerasa, as we just mentioned, Matthew says Gadara. <clears throat> and the Gerasa is included in one of the oldest manuscripts we have, the Codex Sinaiticus. So that's why it's listed in there. The Codex Sinaiticus is the oldest manuscript we have of a complete New Testament. So the, the Gergesenes, which it says in the King James Version, was favored by Origen, one of the early church scholars who lived in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. And Origen preferred Gergesenes because, one, it, you can see it's right on the lake, so it would be closest. Two, it has these steep cliffs that demons could easily run off of and plunge into the sea, which is what we see happens in this passage. And three, because its name literally means dwelling of the casters out. So that's why Origen thought that this was the appropriate translation. But the problem is, is there's a lack of manuscript um, support. So it makes that unlikely. Of the two more likely locations, Gerasa and Gadara, Gerasa was about 40 miles distance, <coughs> which would make this a much more prolonged and unlikely journey. So of the two, Gadara or Garasa, most favor Gadara, which is what you see in Matthew. Most scholars agree that Gadara is the location for the story, and it is supported by the majority of texts. So while we're not 100% sure, we can be reasonably sure that this is the case. It's six miles away, so it's close enough to make the trip there and back. And it's also, it's one of the larger regions. So Gadara, archaeologists have discovered the coins from that region, and on one side of the coin is a ship. So what that tells us is that water was very important to them, including for water commerce and for fishing. So the text in Matthew also says country of the Galileans. So that also tells us that it's not, it might not be specifically at that location, but it might be in that region. And it's pretty, it's pretty likely to think that the region of Gadara could have extended all the way to the shoreline where this story might have taken place. The important thing to remember is it's all these cities, including Gadara, are part of the Decapolis, which we know is ten cities filled with mostly Gentiles. <coughs> Excuse me, the other major difference between these... Nice catch. So the other major difference between these texts is that you'll see that Matthew, Matthew says two demon-possessed men. If you look in Mark and Luke, the parallel passages that are in Mark 5 and Luke 8, you'll see that they only mention one. So the Greek word here for demon-possessed in Matthew is demonisome. And that's also the word they use in Mark. And Luke uses a little different uh, word, demonion. But demonisome is used 13 times in the New Testament. And we saw this word earlier, although we might not have recognized it, earlier in this chapter in verse 16. This comes after Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And it says he went on to do many other healings. And it says to cast out demons, and this is what it says in 
That evening they brought in many who were oppressed by demons and cast out the spirits of the word and healed all who were sick. So if we read on into verse 17, we see this interesting part. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So in that passage, we have Matthew connecting Jesus to Isaiah. It would have been a big deal to the Jews because he's quoting Isaiah 53. He's essentially identifying Jesus as the suffering servant, as the Messiah. So what do we think about demons and demon possession? And that's a good word to ask today. And it's been asked for a hundred, well over a hundred years. And David Strauss, a Protestant theologian who lived in the 1830s, he said, we may summarily reject all miracles, prophecies, narratives of angels and demons and the like. It's simply impossible and irreconcilable with the known and universal laws which govern the course of events. Strauss is saying that we're enlightened people, and he's saying this early in the 19th century, so surely in the 21st century, we're even more enlightened, right? Strauss says that we should reject the supernatural as outside the universal natural law. But think about that for a second. Should we reject the supernatural? Did you know that according to a CBS News poll, 48% of people in the country believe in ghosts, and 66% of non-believers believe in the paranormal? And Baylor University did a study in 2007, and then what they found was that of Christians, people that attended church weekly, 87% believe that demons exist or probably exist. <clears throat> it's interesting that as people attend church less, if they attend less than once a week, then those numbers reverse. 80% of people that attend less than once a week of professing believers don't believe that demons exist. Here's the thing, at least for us. We believe in a book that tells us about a man who walked on water, who healed people, who raised people from the dead, and he was raised from the dead himself. And he was actually observed ascending into heaven. And we believe that he sits at the right hand, interceding on our behalf. So if you have trouble believing in demons, well then what do you do with Jesus? Where do you stand on supernatural occurrences? And how do you reconcile Jesus being raised from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus lived and died and was raised? And do your lives reflect that belief? David Strauss, who I quoted a few minutes ago, denied Jesus' divinity. He said that Jesus wasn't divine, that he couldn't have, have raised himself, or God could not have raised him from the dead. He did not believe that Jesus was God. And that is what you have to do, right? If you have to start to parse out the supernatural and dismisses myth and legend, well then you have to do that with the resurrection, because that violates the natural law also. 25% of evangelicals aren't certain that Jesus was actually resurrected. One in four. And friends, if you pull that thread, the whole thing unravels. And if it unravels,
deep trouble. Listen to what Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. He says, Now if Christ proclaimed his raised from the dead, sorry, if Christ is proclaimed his raised from the dead, how can some of you, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. He says your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. What this actually means is that you're not reconciled to God. And it's not reconciled to God, you are facing God's eternal, unquenchable wrath against sin with no Savior. And that is a terrible place to be. In regards to demons, in my generation, the most famous movie about demons is The Exorcist from 1973. This film is the 29th highest grossing film in the world. It earned over $430 million. In the film, Linda Blair plays a young girl named Regan who gets possessed by an evil spirit after visiting Washington, D.C. Now, Linda Blair made 64 films over the course of her career, and if you have heard of her, I challenge you to name another movie that she was in. I should say another good movie. She got several awards for being the worst actress in several films, but most people only know her as a demon-possessed projectile homie preteen whose head spins around 360 degrees. Well, what's interesting is that Blair would like to be known for the charity work that she does with animal charities and for the 63 other films that she did. But the public won't let her. They're obsessed with one role at one point in time where she was 14 years old. Every public occurrence that she does, they surround her with exorcism props, or they have a Q&A where she asks questions about what it was like to play a demon-possessed girl 46 years ago. The single role has defined her whole life. Although many non-Christians and Christians like scoff at stories of demons in the Bible, this woman who played a, a demon-possessed girl in a film 46 years ago isn't allowed to talk about anything else. Everybody wants to know what it was like to play a demon in a film. As much as we say these things don't exist, we love the supernatural. We love superheroes. We love the Marvel Universe. We love the DC Universe, although Aquaman was a terrible film. <laughs> <laughs> and I rented it. <laughs> but we love these TV shows that bear these names, like Supernatural, Heroes, TV shows like Stranger Things, shows about paranormal, shows about ghosts. We love shows about zombies. Anybody ever heard of The Walking Dead? We love these kinds of things. And Chapman University did a survey in 2015, and among America's top fears was zombies, <laughs> the undead. Now, it wasn't at the top, but it was on the list. So the public may say they don't believe in demons, but what's pretty obvious is that we behave as if we do. Something about us is attracted to the idea of supernatural, even though we want to deny it at every chance we get. 
books is a book from a man named C.S. Lewis. It's called Screwtape Letters, and it's a series of letters uh, for the nerds. It was dedicated to fellow author J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The Screwtape Letters is this great story about this senior demon named Screwtape, who's, who's basically conducting a class on tempting for his, his junior tempter nephew named Wormwood. <coughs> Interesting enough, Excuse me. Wormwood is also the name of Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes' first grade teacher. So that's pretty interesting. Calvin and Calvin and Hobbes' first grade teacher was named after a demon. Important trivia for you sending your children back to school next week. Screwtape is giving Wormwood a course on tempting, and he's tempting this Englishman who he calls the patient. I'm sorry, Wormwood is. Screwtape is telling him how to do it. This is what Screwtape tells him. If you can get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all. And more amusing. So think about that for a second. What Screwtape is telling Wormwood is moderate religion is just as good as no religion. Wormwood eventually fails as the patient falls in love with a Christian girl. Wormwood is then consumed by Screwtape. One of the other most insidious things that Screwtape tells Wormwood is he tells him the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turns, without milestones, without signposts, in short, the wide and easy path. Exactly the opposite of what Jesus says. Without signposts and without milestones. You get the sense of apathy there, just kind of going through the motions, just walking on a path and just keep walking. Never knowing how far you are from anywhere. Never being able to tell how far you've come. He says that's the safest road to hell. And again, friends, we need to ask ourselves if our lives demonstrate the evidence of belief. And while the demons I just described to you are very civilized, actually, the ones that Jesus is talking about, or Matthew's talking about in this passage today, are far from civilized. Screwtape and Wormwood are civilized demons to talk about gently turning our attention away from God one degree at a time until we're headed in the opposite direction. And again, these aren't the Jesus that de that these aren't the demons that Jesus encounters. So look back at the passage of me and we'll keep going. So if you look in, in verse 28, we see that Matthew mentions two demoniacs. That's different from the other parallel passages in Mark and Luke, who only mention one. And again, we shouldn't be afraid of these differences. They can be reconciled. First, neither Mark nor Luke say there was only one man. So there is no reason to believe that this is a different account. The fact that Mark and Luke don't prohibit more than one man leaves open the possibility that there was, in fact, more than one. <coughs> it's also probable that the demon spoken of in Mark and Luke is a primary demon or a leader. Since Mark and Luke identify him as legion and actually identifies himself when Jesus asks him who he is, 
we can be pretty sure that he is the spokesperson for the demon horde. But Matthew doesn't identify the demon. Matthew's more concerned with the, with the narrative of Jesus, the demons, and the town people's responses. In this passage, only Jesus is identified by name. The men are identified as two demon-possessed men. No other information about their identity is given. Their identity as individuals doesn't appear to be important. What is important is their affliction. They are possessed by demons. And what does that look like? If you look in the passage in Luke, it says, For a long time he had worn no clothes, he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And Mark 5, in the opening of Mark 5, it goes a little further, and says that he was so strong that chains couldn't bind him. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And we should keep in mind that these demons, they live among the tombs. The only thing alive in this area that they live are the demoniacs, and they're enslaved by demons. So we see that Jesus, a Jew, goes to Gadara, which is so far has Gentiles, demons, pigs, and graveyards. So if you think about ritual purity for a second, this seems like the least likely place that the Jews would want to go to. But Jesus goes there. It's probably the most unclean, unclean environment that we can imagine. He goes there, and according to Scripture, this is the only thing that he does. It's not mentioned again. This town isn't. Jesus goes there. He delivers these demoniacs. And that is it. The next passage, he picks up crossing back over the Sea of Galilee. In the passage of Mark and Luke, Jesus learns the name of the demon is Legion because there are many. We don't know how many, but Mark 13 ends the chapter with saying that the demons rushed into a herd of pigs, numbering about 2,000. So there are probably at least 2,000 demons. In the accounts, the men never say anything. It's the demons that identify themselves in Mark and Luke. The men are anonymous, and their affliction has to become their identity. So we look on in verse 29. The demons speak, and the text says they cry out, What have you to do with us, the Son of God? This is pretty big. Matthew wants us to pay attention to this. And the sentence starts out with, Behold. The Greek word for that is kai do and look. And Matthew is drawing our attention to the events, and it's, it's something big. And what's big is the demons recognize Jesus as the Son of God. If you look back into verse 27, you remember Dave finished off his passage with the disciples asking the question, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey? It's interesting that the demons don't ask this question. The demons know the answer. They recognize him as the Son of God. The demons know what sort of man this is. They recognize him immediately. They have the right answer. 
to the questions that the disciples didn't answer. And we've seen this title, Son of God, three times so far in the book of Matthew. God calls Jesus his son in Jesus' baptism. In Matthew 3, 17, he says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You may recall that Satan calls Jesus the son of God twice while tempting him in the wilderness. I'll read a little bit of those passages here. In Matthew 4, 3, he says, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And again, in 4, 6, he says, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Now, those Satan asks him if you are the Son of God, we pretty much assume he knows, right? If Legion knows, if the demons know, it's pretty safe to assume that Satan knows that he's the Son of God. This should be contrasted with Jesus' favorite title for himself, which is Son of Man. Jesus describes himself as Son of Man 30 times in the book of Matthew. Every time he's called Son of Man, it's by Christ himself. You know how many times he specifically refers to himself as Son of God? Zero. He confirms it several times. Like in Matthew 16, 13, Jesus asks, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And in Matthew 26, and in the parallel passages in Mark 14 and Luke 22, the high priest asks Jesus if he is the Son of God, and Jesus answers, I am. So although he doesn't specifically call himself the Son of God, he does confirm that he is the Son of God. But it's interesting to see who does refer to Jesus as the Son of God. For anybody that says he's not referred to as a son of God, or doesn't, it doesn't indicate that he's the son of God. Satan calls him the son of God, the demons call him the son of God, the Gentiles call him the son of God, Simon calls him the son of God, the high priest calls him the son of God, God calls him the son of God. That's pretty emphatic. <laughs> so the demons question, what have you to do with us? The new international commentary on the New Testament renders us renders it, leave us alone, Son of God. So they're not really asking the question so much as asking Jesus to ignore them. What the demons don't want is contact with Jesus. They want him to leave. Have you come here to torment us before the time is the question that they ask. And the demons know that, they're, that Jesus is the Son of God. They know that Jesus has the power to torment them. Do you know what else they know? They know that there's a time. Their days are numbered, and they're concerned. So they ask him to leave. This is fleshed out a little more in Matthew 25, 31, where it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne. Before him will gather all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. The king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's you. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And that is everybody else. 
He says further on in verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Where are they going to go? They're going cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is a place prepared for these demons, and they know it. Eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is why they want Jesus to live. They don't want it to be the appointed time. They're hoping that it's not. So what is better than eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels? Pigs. Pigs are better. So they ask instead to be sent into the pigs. What do we know about pigs? Well, after we read this passage, we know that they don't fly, they don't swim, but they sure are good to eat. <laughs> so look at verse 30. It says, Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away to the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went to the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Drowned in the waters because that is better, friends, than the punishment that awaits them at the final judgment. Eternal fire in a place prepared for Satan and his angels. Ultimately, Jesus gives them what they ask for because it's not the appointed time. So they see these pigs at a great distance. The demons ask Jesus to send them out the pigs. He does. And the pigs run off the cliff into the water. We know that the herd was close, but not real close. It was a pretty good distance. They could see them, but it, it, it has the impact of it being not, not in close proximity. And you know from the passage that I read earlier from Mark, or mentioned earlier from Mark, is that he talks about the herd and about the 2,000 evil spirits. If you can imagine being possessed by 2,000 evil spirits, which is what these two men were possessed with, then we can, the, the reaction of the pigs seems much more natural. They do what they expect them to do. They run off a cliff and drown themselves. Scholars Turner and Bach point, this out, point out that this was probably pretty humorous to the Jewish Christians. Who would have seen this as an appropriate end to unclean animals? Since pigs were considered bottom-rung animals, Probably didn't bother them to see 2,000 of them plunge into the ocean. I'm sorry, into the sea. Now, I thought about having a moment of silence here for the pigs, because I love the pork. <laughs> but, and my wife was a vegetarian for 20 years, but she finally fell off the vegetarian wagon, which was the source of much joy in my household. It was because of bacon, which is good. Right. And there are a lot of arguments about, among scholars about whether or not the demons survive, whether they perish with the pigs, or whether it's just the pigs that perish. And friends, it doesn't say in Scripture whether they survived that particular encounter. It doesn't say whether they drowned. And we can't know for sure, but this is what I would say. I think the demons did survive. And here's why. First off, the demons don't fear being destroyed as an option that accompanies being sent to the pigs. They ask to be sent to the pigs. 
probably a possibility that pigs are going to freak out and run off the cliff and drown themselves, but the demons don't seem to be concerned about that, even though the pigs might be grazing next to the cliffs. But the other thing is they expect judgment by Jesus at the appointed time. And they know that this involves torment. And they know that the word used is eternal. So they're asking to be sent to the pigs, which seem to indicate something other than an expectation that they would be destroyed. If Matthew goes on to say there is eternal fire for the devil and his angels, as we've just seen, then I'm not sure that they can be so easily disposed of by throwing them over a cliff and them drowning where their hosts drown. And so it's not that Jesus can't destroy them, because it's clear that the demons know that he can torment them, and he, they also know that there's eternal for fire prepared for them. I just don't think he did. And if demons are supernatural creatures, then you have to wonder why water would affect them any differently than air would. I think they have judgment and punishment coming, but not until the appointed time. So friends, we keep looking at this passage. The last piece of this puzzle is the townsfolk. The passage says, the city cannot defeat him. They begged him to leave the region. Picking up in verse 33, it says, the herdsmen fled, going into, into the city. They told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. In verse 34, Matthew uses Kaidu again, behold and look. It's another pet moment. Matthew is revealing in verse 34 that all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. So we see here that it's not just the Jews that reject Jesus, it's the Gentiles also. We've seen other Gentile responses, like the centurion, and this isn't that. They beg him to leave. This brings up these two responses to Jesus that we see in Scripture, restoration or rejection. The right response is restoration, because Jesus is the Son of God. So we have other examples in Scripture of this same thing. In Acts 16, for example, Paul and Silas go to Philippi and meet Lydia outside the city by the riverside. It says in verse 14, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of something, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged to say, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, Come to my house and stay. And they do. But right after that, Paul and Silas meet this girl who has a spirit of divination. And she follows them around preaching the truth. She says, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. So Paul had demands the demon to come out. So she has a demon. It just happens that it's a de demon of a spirit of divination is what it says. 
So it's, it's giving her insight in what the truth is. And Paul here is irritated that she's following him around and preaching the truth and telling the truth because she's possessed by a demon. And people are making money off of her ability to tell what the truth is or to see the future. So Paul tells the demon to come out and it does. And you, you might remember that the response of the owners of, of this person are they beat Paul and Silas and put him in jail. So they just got done with Lydia when she comes to faith they stay with her as they're walking away or wherever this girl comes upon where she has a demon that they cast out. They're beaten and put in jail. What do they do in jail? They evangelize the jailer. Paul and Silas are put in prison. They evangelize the prison and end up eating at the Philippian jailer's house, baptizing his whole family. I love this passage because the magistrates, probably seeing these people coming to faith, orders them released. And he wants them released secretly. So he wants them to be let out and to go. But when they go to release them secretly, Paul says, no. Let them come themselves and take us out. It's kind of funny to me that they want Paul and Silas to leave secretly, and Paul just stays there in jail. Basically saying, come kick me out. And once they do, they come and they release them. What do Paul and Silas do? They go see Lydia. They encourage her and the others and brothers and sisters in the faith. So we see these two responses, even in that, even in that passage, restoration and rejection. In our passage, the, passage, the parallel passage in Mark and Luke says that after Jesus was driven out in Luke 8.38, it says, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So that response of restoration is Jesus tells us to go and to tell others what Jesus has done for us. In 8.34 it says, Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they saw him, they begged him to leave. It goes on in 8.35, said, The people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So they come back and they see this man who had the demons who up until this time had lived among the dead, cutting himself with sharp stones. And there he is, deliverer, clothed, in his right mind, sitting at Jesus' feet. And they're afraid. They're afraid. They don't really want what he has. What do they want? They want the pigs. The should remind us of the rich young ruler. That story is found in all three Gospels also. He asked what else can be done since he's all observed all the law says since he was young. Jesus tells him, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then he tells him, come follow me. 
The Bible says the rich young ruler went away sad because he didn't want Jesus. In our passage, the men are not sad at being delivered. We see this one wants to follow Jesus. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, stay. Jesus doesn't let him go. He has several different responses. Sometimes he tells them to keep quiet. With the leper, he told them to go tell the priests. But to this Gentile, he says, stay. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. It's interesting that while Jesus is traveling with the disciples about to make apostles, he is also making evangelists. Think about that. There's definitely a distinction between the 12 apostles and everybody else. <clears throat> but if you look at John 4 with me for a minute, you find the story of the woman at the well. In that story, Jesus finds a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. We know that she had five husbands, and the man she was living with was not her husband. So Jesus reveals to her that he is the Messiah. He tells her that he is living water. He tells her that he has food for her to eat. <coughs> Remember the response of the disciples? They stand around asking does the master do you bring food that we don't know about? But she gets it. She follows Jesus, but she doesn't follow after Jesus. Instead, she goes back and she evangelizes her town. And scripture says that others believe because of her testimony. So Jesus sends these men back to their homes to evangelize their neighbors and family. Now, he doesn't have teaching. He's not sitting at Jesus' feet for long that we know of. But he has a story. And Jesus tells him, go back and tell him everything I did for you. And we shouldn't underestimate our story in, in this story. The power of our testimony is important. Whether it's a story much like mine coming out of a life of atheism or whether it's coming to Christ at the age of nine and being preserved from and through sin throughout your whole life, this is the continued story of how God uses all of us to form the church and the bride of Christ. He uses all our stories to show us Lord. And he's still confirming this message with supernatural signs. He's confirming the power of the gospel through changed hearts every day. It's never easy or comfortable or painless, but it is always better. <coughs> so the simple application from this passage is, Jesus is the king of the natural and the supernatural. If you've heard the gospel and responded in faith, then obey and follow Christ. Whether he calls you to someplace else, or desiring to be called away, he commands you to stay. His command is simply to follow him. And if you have not done that, I urge you to do that now.
The demons know that there is an appointed time when they will be judged, and they will not be the only ones judged, my friends. And no matter when it is, we are getting closer to it every day. Jesus sets us free, free to go, even free to stay, but most importantly, though, he sets us free to obey him. Look at this again. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Let this be our command today and every day, my friends. Whether we go to the ends of the earth, to our jobs, to our neighborhoods, to our schools, to our homes, declare how much God has done for you and you will see changed hearts done through the supernatural work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.